Hi everyone, David Harris here for Criminal Injustice. And one of the things that I get to do when I'm not on the microphone for our listeners of Criminal Injustice is I sometimes serve as the legal analyst for radio station WESA-FM. That is the NPR flagship station in Pittsburgh. Uh, I was uh, privileged to do this uh, again a few days ago when I appeared on The Confluence, their daily public affairs show hosted by Kevin Gavin. We had a conversation about several issues that have been much in the news here in Pittsburgh, but particularly a recent case in which four young men were accused of a crime they did not commit and were held in custody, at least some of them were, for a period of months, all with alibis, not just weak alibis, but video evidence showing that they were not at the crime scene. They were somewhere else. What were the issues there? How could that problem be solved? My conversation with Kevin was produced by Kylie Kaczynski and Megan Harris. Here it is. David, four Pittsburgh teens who were charged in a 2017 shooting that wounded three children in the Hill District were released in late September after spending months in jail. Mistakes are made, innocent people are arrested, but the teens said that they had witnesses and evidence that they were not at the scene of the shooting. Why did this take so long to get straight? Well, that's the that's the key question, Kevin. You know, nobody expects the criminal justice system to be perfect, but we have a right to expect it to function uh, at a reasonably high level most of the time, if not all of the time, because it deals with such crucial questions as people's freedom. Uh, in a case like this, we're still unraveling what happened, but it simply appears that these cases and the alibis that the young men had and the evidence for those alibis was simply never checked in a timely way. And the cases therefore fell through the cracks. Having an innocent person sit in jail is a first level disaster for any criminal justice system, whether it's a county, a state, or the United States. And so we need to know that this isn't going to happen again. It's a very, very serious thing. And it's easy to find uh, the cases where this has happened before in recent years in this very county. So there's a lot of reason to be concerned. So this was not a uh, an aberration in this county? Well, it's an aberration. Well, it's an aberration in the sense that there aren't a lot of cases like this, but have, having it happen even once would be a first-level disaster. Having it happen at least two other times that I was easily able to find in recent years uh, means that this is not a one-off problem. It is a system problem. There is something wrong here with the way that all of our agencies are working together. It's not the responsibility of any one person, it seems, uh, though we've heard Mr. Zapala, our DA, take personal responsibility for it. Uh, it's more than that. Uh, it simply cannot be that that alibis where there is real evidence, not just my girlfriend said I was with her watching TV. These are real alibis. This is video evidence. These are paper logs and other unrelated people who say, no, these people were with me. Um, that stuff has to be checked immediately if somebody is locked up. You just can't have innocent people with alibis locked up for months at a time. Well, D.A. Zapala said the blame was with his office, but also with 
Pittsburgh police and county probation because I believe one of the teens was on probation. Yes. Defense attorneys pointed their fingers at the DA's office for not verifying the alibis, which you mentioned. But also, according to the Post-Gazette, the defense attorneys also pointed their fingers at the DA's office for using a county grand jury to charge the four teens. Is the grand jury process used often in such cases? Well, the grand jury process is an option for the district attorney, and the district attorney may use it for a variety of reasons. One of the key, uh, one of the key aspects of grand jury practice is secrecy, and sometimes you need secrecy to shield an investigation so you don't have people's reputations ruined so that witnesses who are reluctant to speak to the police can come forward so there's no witness intimidation. We don't know all the circumstances, and we may never know why this case was set of cases was taken to the grand jury. But what the grand jury does is make the whole process a lot less transparent. Sometimes, as I said, that's appropriate. Other times, it can be overused. So we want to know as citizens that this is being used in an appropriate way because it does tend to obscure what is really going on. It should only be used when there's a real reason for that secrecy and not to simply do it as a routine matter. Mm -hmm. So secrecy, but also I believe that a grand jury eliminates the preliminary hearing process where the defense can actually challenge witness testimony. So possibly this could have been avoided if there had been a preliminary trial? It's possible, certainly, but it could also have been avoided if this information, when given to the police and the DA, was if it was investigated rapidly and rigorously. There's just no reason that people should sit in jail when the alibi material is presented to the authorities. It shouldn't fall through the cracks. We can design a system that will assure that this happened. Right now, there appears to be no system. All the reporting that's been done on this by the Post-Gazette and other outlets tells us that the the responsibility was simply too diffuse, that if you had one person going on leave, another person uh, uh, leaving a job, something like that, that the whole system fell apart. And that's not a responsible way to do business. You have to have a system that makes sure that the responsible actors do their jobs very rapidly in a situation where people say, look, the guy is on video somewhere else, and this isn't the first time it's happened. Our guest on The Confluence is WESA's legal analyst, David Harris. David, in another case, last month an Allegheny County judge issued a gag order in the case of Christian Bay of Wilkinsburg. He's the man who is charged with killing Pittsburgh off-duty police officer Calvin Hall. That's because one of the defense attorneys did an interview with another radio station on the day that Bay was arraigned. Dave, how often are gag orders issued? They're not all that common, Kevin. They do get issued, but they tend to be in higher profile cases in which there's a lot of public interest already, uh, cases that are highly publicized or even sensational. And this Hall case, the, the murder of... Uh, uh, Officer Hall fits that description. The, The danger that the judge is responding to when issuing a gag order is the danger of tainting a jury pool. This is not only uh, a danger when defense attorneys talk, it's sometimes a danger when prosecutors talk. So a judge will order a gag order uh, in notorious high-profile cases where there is some danger that the jury hearing all this preliminary talk 
uh, potential jurors and, and make their minds up uh, too early. Right. So gag order, attorneys, witnesses, uh, not a lot of talk, obviously, to the media and to the public. So the big question is, though, does a gag order violate, uh, violate free speech rights? I don't think so. I mean, this is one of those instances, Kevin, in which we have two competing constitutional values. One, of course, is the, the uh, a right to a fair trial. Anybody who's accused has a right to a fair trial with an unbiased jury pool. On the other hand, people generally have a right to express their opinions and their thoughts. Uh, a gag order, remember, does not stop the media from publishing. It does not stop the public from discussing it only affects the very small pool of people who are involved as potential witnesses or lawyer advocates. It stops them from talking, and they can still speak in court. They simply cannot speak outside of court. So uh, while the law does not favor the idea of stopping speech ahead of time, any kind of prior restraint is presumptively not the right thing to do. In a competing situation, a situation with a competing value of having a fair trial, we will stop a small number of people from speaking about the case so as to ensure that other value of fair trials. All right. Uh, and I want to correct myself. That interview between the defense attorney and the media outlet was KDKA TV. It wasn't radio. Uh, David, very briefly, we spoke recently when Allegheny County had its first ever conviction in a drug delivery resulting in death case, the dealer being charged with an overdose death. Now, federal authorities have charged a man with distributing the drugs that killed three men and sickened at least three others last month in a Southside apartment building. Uh, federal authorities, is it easier to charge in this case? Are the charges and subsequent penalties more significant? The penalties are certainly more significant. We see the federal government sometimes step in when you have a, a more serious crime, a greater number of deaths in this case than in some of the other recent drug delivery cases. The comparison is pretty stark. Under state law, you, you uh, stand to suffer a penalty of up to 40 years, but it's up to. It could be a lot less. Under the federal law, with a drug delivery case, death resulting, the minimum is 20 so this is a much more serious case in terms of penalties. And the could the feds, is there a way to charge responsibility with death like uh, Allegheny County? Oh, yeah. Yes, that's and that's exactly what this case does in the case of the defendant Montalvo. Uh, three people overdose resulting in death. That ups the penalty from a 10-year minimum to the 20-year minimum. So the federal penalty can be quite, quite stiff in a case like this. David Harris is WESA's legal analyst, a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's host of the Criminal and Justice podcast. David, thanks so much. Always enjoy being with you, Kevin. Thank you. That's it. That's my recent conversation with host Kevin Gavin of The Confluence on WESA-FM Public Radio in Pittsburgh. Please support our work here at Criminal Injustice by becoming a member. Go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson, and supported by listener contributions. Find past episodes, show notes, and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Criminal Injustice Podcast.